Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard of a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Welcome to the Morbid Tourism Podcast, where we talk about cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning. This episode contains descriptions of extreme violence and a school shooting. This podcast is not recommended for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In America, school shootings have unfortunately become a somewhat common phenomenon in the last several decades. But after every single one, the same questions are asked. Were there warning signs? Could this have been prevented? In today's case, just like in the case of so many other school shootings, the answer to both of these questions is a resounding yes. But the perpetrator again and again slipped through the cracks, which ultimately ended in unthinkable tragedy. The Bishop family lived in the town of Braintree, Massachusetts, which is located about 20 minutes south of Boston. The neighborhood they lived in was upper middle class, and the home they occupied at 46 Hollis Avenue is a beautiful Victorian home built in 1850, and it even had a carriage house with two bedrooms in it. Judy and Sam Bishop had raised their two children in the house, and though they were pretty strict parents, they tried to raise their children to be empathetic and really kind-hearted. Judy Bishop was super active in the community, and she served as an elected official on the town committee. She had very close ties with a bunch of government agencies, including the police department, and she was pretty friendly with the police chief. This made sense because the town committee that she sat on decided the police department's annual budget. Now, the oldest bishop child, Amy Bishop, she was smart, but she had been really shy and awkward basically her entire life. Their second child, just one year younger than Amy, was named Seth Bishop. Seth was also very smart, very talented, just like Amy, but he had tons of charisma. He was outgoing and was super popular. Growing up, Seth had looked up to Amy and really tried to support her when she was feeling sad or depressed, which happened fairly often. But over the years, the support slowly faded and Amy, Amy became, became more, more and more, and more resentful, resentful of Seth's ability, of Sam's to, ability fit to fit in, in, and, in make and make friends. Something that she just couldn't figure out. She couldn't do herself. Seth was the family's golden child, and really he could do no wrong in the eyes of Judy and Sam. Whereas Amy often fell short of their very high expectations. By 1986, both Amy and Seth were in college. Both of them had very bright futures ahead. On December 6th of that year, Sam Bishop got into an argument with his daughter, and Amy retreated to her bedroom upstairs while he left to go get some Christmas shopping done at a nearby shopping center. 
Judy and Seth were downstairs in the kitchen when they must have heard a loud boom from upstairs at around 2.20 p.m. The cause of this sound was from Amy. She had gone into her parents' bedroom and retrieved the family's Mossberg pump-action shotgun, loaded it with bullets, and let off a round inside her bedroom. She shot a hole in the bedroom wall just above her vanity. She kind of panicked and quickly placed a tin of band-aids in front of the hole that she had just made, and she went downstairs where she found her mother and brother in the kitchen. At that point, she claimed that she was just trying to unload the rifle when it went off two more times, once blowing a hole through the kitchen ceiling and once through the right side of Seth's chest. As Seth lay bleeding to death on the kitchen floor, Amy fled. She ran out the back door of the house. Then she tried to carjack several people before finally being apprehended after a short police standoff. Her mother, Judy, immediately called 911 and with an eerily calm voice, she told the dispatcher that, quote, my son was shot. Although first responders were on the scene quickly, there was little they could do to help Seth. His aorta had been severed by the birdshot in the shotgun, and at 3.08, he was pronounced dead at Quincy City Hospital. Amy was brought in to the police station for questioning after the standoff with police at about 2.45. She was read her Miranda rights, then told police that she had initially gotten the gun out of her parents' room because she was afraid of intruders and wanted to learn how to use the gun. She'd then gone downstairs to ask her brother to show her how to unload it when it went off and shot him. She panicked and ran. Before police could ask her much more, Amy's mother, Judy, burst into the police station demanding to speak to the police chief, who happened to be at home at the time all of this was happening. Judy demanded that the officers get him on the phone at once, and then she just forced her way into the interrogation room where Amy was and told her not to answer any more questions. Now, Amy was an adult at this point. She was older than 18, so really her mother shouldn't have been in that room without the police letting her in, but she just didn't take no for an answer, and she just let herself into the room. The other officers by then had made contact with the police chief, and he informed the officers that the whole situation was an accident and they needed to let Amy go. The ensuing investigation into what happened that day was basically a farce. Amy would never be charged with a crime, and officially the incident went down as an accidental shooting. The bishops were fiercely private about that day, which could be understandable if it was an accident or if it was on purpose, but even Amy's own boyfriend didn't know how Seth had died. He actually assumed that Seth had just killed himself and the family didn't want to talk about it. Amy would never be compared to her brother again. Amy eventually graduated from Northeastern University with a degree in biology. In 1989, she married her college boyfriend, a young man named Jimmy Anderson, who had also been a biology student at Northeastern. Oddly, although Jimmy's legal name was Jimmy, 
Amy insisted on calling him James because she said it made him sound like less of a redneck. After graduation, Amy wanted to continue her education and become a world-renowned scientist. She was able to get into Harvard, and she began to work towards a PhD in genetics, while James continued his own research independently. The pair had no money, so they lived in a small dorm on campus together. By 1993, Amy had become Dr. Amy Bishop, and the couple had welcomed three daughters, Lily, Thea, and Phaedra. Amy felt comfortable in academia, so she secured a job as a postgraduate research fellow in the neurobiology lab at Harvard, where she worked under a man named Dr. Rosenberg. Amy had shown some signs of mental illness in the past, besides what happened with the shooting, and it seemed that being a mother to three young girls and all of the other pressures that she was under was causing cracks to form. She was underperforming at work, and in November of 1993, Dr. Rosenberg let Amy know during a work performance review that she was not performing up to standard and that she needed to kind of do better in order to stay on in the position. Dr. Rosenberg felt that Amy just wasn't up to the standard that was required for the work that they were doing, and he had seen evidence of violent behavior from Amy in the past, which concerned him. Amy was furious while Dr. Rosenberg delivered her review, and she just resigned from the role in his lab instead of trying to work harder and do a better job. A few weeks after she left the position, a box arrived at Dr. Rosenberg's home. This was in the midst of the Unabomber case, and luckily, staff at Harvard had been instructed on how to handle unexpected packages. Instead of just opening the box, Dr. Rosenberg called the police, who confirmed that it contained a bomb that easily could have killed him if he had opened the package. An investigation followed with the FBI involved, who determined that it was not the work of the Unabomber. Although investigators looked into several leads, they kept circling back to Amy and James Bishop, Although when they ran background checks, no prior criminal charges showed up for either. There were a few pieces of key evidence that tied Amy and James to the bomb, including the box that was determined to be from an office supplies distributor. Investigators nailed down exactly what had been shipped in that exact box using minute traces of ink from a shipping label that had been removed from the box, but some of the ink was still on the box. And they determined that it had contained accounting tablets. They found the exact same type of accounting tablets in the possession of James Bishop. In the end, though, prosecutors felt that there just wasn't enough evidence against the couple to bring it to trial, and the investigation was just stopped. After that, Amy was able to secure another postdoctoral fellow position at Harvard, but this time in the School of Public Health. James, on the other hand, had trouble finding steady employment, and he kept looking for work as a computer engineering consultant. Running out of money, the couple and their three young children moved in with Amy's parents, who had moved from the home where Seth was shot into a newer but smaller house. 
Amy quickly made a name for herself among the neighbors, although it was not a good one. She was known throughout the neighborhood as PETA, which was an acronym for pain in the ass. One time, she berated an ice cream truck driver for driving down her street because her kids were lactose intolerant and she didn't think it was fair for them to have to see the ice cream truck and not be able to get any. She was known for calling 911 at the drop of a hat, like for anything. And after a while, the police stopped responding to her noise complaints because they happened so often. In 2001, Amy gave birth to the couple's fourth child and first son, who they named Seth after Amy's brother. Not long after Seth was born in 2001, the family was at an IHOP getting breakfast. Amy asked a waitress for a booster chair for the baby Seth, but was informed that the last one had just been given to another family, and as soon as another one became available, she'd be able to get that one. Now, a normal person would probably just say, okay, just bring one over when it's available, that would be great, but Amy wasn't a normal person. Instead, she flew off the rails, mad, because the other family that had gotten the last booster chair had been sat after her, and she felt that she deserved the booster seat. She berated the other family, screaming, quote, you bitch, give me that booster seat. I was here first. Don't you know who I am? I'm Dr. Amy Bishop, end quote. And she didn't stop there. She struck the mother in the face before taking her family and leaving the restaurant. Now, the employees at IHOP and the other guests were not having any of this, and they called the police to that IHOP. The other mother gave a statement detailing exactly what had happened, and it was all corroborated by the other patrons and the restaurant staff. When the police went to Dr. Amy Bishop's house, she stated that the other mother had assaulted her first and blocked the exit when they tried to leave. Amy was charged with disorderly conduct and assault and battery, but at court, the case was continued without a finding. So I had never heard of this before. I didn't know what continued without a finding meant, but essentially it means that the case would be dismissed if the defendant meets certain requirements. In this case, Dr. Amy Bishop was required to agree to the facts of the case as presented by the prosecution and stay out of trouble for six months. She obliged, she stayed out of trouble, and the charges were dropped from her record. In 2003, it seemed like Amy was finally on the track to fulfilling her dream of being a tenured professor. She got an offer to work at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, teaching various biology and science classes. At the time, Huntsville, Alabama was relatively up and coming with lots of aerotech and a good amount of startups in the area. When Amy signed on to work at the university, part of the agreement as a professor included that she had to secure a tenureship within six years Otherwise, she would lose her teaching contract altogether and would no longer be allowed to work at the university. Basically, the university thought that if you can't secure tenureship within six years, then you're probably not up to the standard that we want teaching at this university anyways, so you can't work here anymore. 
During the first few years in her employment with UAH, Amy secured several tens of thousands of dollars in grants, which is one of the main ways that the university measured the value of a professor. She also published several studies in peer-reviewed papers and seemed to be on the right track to tenureship. But as time went on, she seemed to kind of lose her focus. For a while, her focus seemed to shift to a new invention that was meant to replace petri dishes. Even if you've taken just a high school level science class, you know what a petri dish is. It's those little round clear plastic dishes that usually have a gel mixture on them and uh, you can grow different bacteria and viruses inside of these um, little secure dishes. But Amy and her family had invented something that was going to replace them entirely. She was so excited about this idea that she stopped pursuing grants, stopped publishing papers, or really anything for about three years, until about a year before her tenure application was due. In that last year, she published three papers, seemingly in an effort to make up for lost time, Although one of these papers was based on some shoddy research, and she'd apparently done it at home with her family. She even named her children as co-authors, even though they were in middle school and high school at the time. Amy Bishop submitted her application without a doubt that she would secure tenureship at the university. In April of 2009, the committee that was in charge of approving tenureship came back with their decisions. Amy Bishop was not granted tenure, meaning that she would be able to continue as a professor for one more year, but after that, she would lose her job entirely. She was understandably upset, and for about nine months, she tried to appeal the decision. She reached out to people that she considered friends that were on the decision committee, but it was to no avail. By February of 2010, Amy Bishop had exhausted her options and received a final notice that she would not be granted tenureship and would not have a job after the school year ended in just a few months. On February 12, 2010, Dr. Amy Bishop taught a few morning classes and then went home for lunch with her husband, James. After lunch, she had James drop her back off at the university for a staff meeting that she needed to attend that afternoon, and she told James that she would give him a call when the meeting was over so he could come back to the university and pick her up. They had plans that night to then go out for a little date night together. Amy made her way to the third floor of the Shelby building, which housed most of the science labs and science professors' offices. The meeting was attended by 13 people in the science department in total, including Dr. Amy Bishop. Now, the meeting kind of just went over very normal things. Nothing was out of the ordinary, and it was wrapping up just before 4 p.m. When Dr. Amy Bishop stood up from her seat and removed a 9mm Ruger handgun from her bag, before anyone knew what was happening, she stood behind Dr. Maria Raglan Davis, put the gun to Dr. Davis's head, and pulled the trigger, killing Dr. Davis instantly. But Amy wasn't done. She immediately shot Dr. Adriel Johnson in the head, who had been sitting right next to Dr. Davis, and killed him instantly. 
She then shot across the conference room table into the chest of biology department chairman Gopi Padilla. It all happened so fast that no one had time to even react, and Amy just kept shooting. She shot Dr. Luis Vera Cruz in the chest, Stephanie Monticilio in the face, and Dr. Joseph Leahy in the head. At this point, Amy's remaining six coworkers that had not been shot scrambled beneath the chairs and the table in an effort to take cover from the gunfire. Dr. Moriarty grabbed Amy Bishop's leg from under the conference room table in attempt to stop her or at least slow her down. Amy Bishop aimed the gun at Dr. Moriarty and pulled the trigger, but the gun was empty. Amy went back to her bag to retrieve additional ammunition, and the remaining staff saw their chance. They pushed Amy out of the conference room and barricaded the door, then called 911 and attempted to treat the wounded. Amy Bishop left the third floor, and she attempted to hide the Ruger in a trash can inside of a woman's bathroom before calmly making her way outside and calling her husband, telling him only, I'm done, pick me up. A SWAT team arrived at the Shelby building within minutes, and paramedics attempted to treat the wounded and revive the dead. At 4.10 p.m., just a few minutes after the massacre had started, a police officer spotted Dr. Amy Bishop near a maintenance entrance to the Shelby building. She seemed really calm, and she did not resist arrest, but she acted confused when she was told what she had done, saying, That's impossible. After the shooting, Huntsville mourned. Classes were canceled for several weeks, and the mayor ordered that all flags on public land be flown at half-mast to honor the victims. Candlelight vigils were held outside of the Shelby Building, where the students and staff were often seen crying and holding each other. In the end, Dr. Amy Bishop had killed three people that day and seriously wounded three others. She was charged with three counts of capital murder and three counts of attempted murder. When the event made the news, police officers in Braintree, Massachusetts, where she had grown up, recognized Amy Bishop as the same woman who was involved in the death of her brother decades before. They decided to look into the case again and found that official police records for the case were missing, although all the other cases from that year were found completely intact in police archives. The Bishop file had been purposefully removed. Luckily, it was later recovered in the home of a police officer who had since died, and when the new district attorney saw the evidence in that file against Amy Bishop, he opened a new investigation into the shooting. Amy Bishop was officially indicted in the death of her brother on June 16, 2010, just a few months after the school shooting had taken place. During this same time, the FBI also reopened the investigation into the bomb that had targeted Dr. Rosenberg. Although, again, they attempted to find evidence that would link both Amy Bishop and her husband James to the bomb, They were ultimately unsuccessful, and they again closed the case without bringing new charges forward. In the trial for the university shooting, Dr. Amy Bishop claimed innocence by reason of insanity, while the prosecution sought the death sentence. 
After the trial had started, one of the victims reached out to the judge and stated that they did not believe that another life should be taken and that they were against the death penalty. The DA's office then reached out to the other surviving victims and the families of those who had died and found that all would be happy if Dr. Amy Bishop received life in prison instead of a death sentence. The prosecution then worked out a plea deal with Amy and her lawyers where she would plead guilty and be sentenced to life in prison. Now, the DA in Massachusetts attempted to have Amy Bishop extradited to stand trial for the death of her brother, but the request was denied and she continues to live out her days in the custody of Norfolk County, Alabama. Thank you for listening to this Morbid Tourism episode about the University of Alabama at Huntsville. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please leave us a rating or review. Let us know what you think. Episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, you can visit morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. We have about 120 locations live, and most of them I have not talked about on the podcast, so feel free to explore. You can follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia and the book A Professor's Rage by Michelle McPhee.